It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 23, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. My guest today is Alex Hitt. Alex and his wife, Betsy, started Peregrine Farm in 1982 in Graham, North Carolina, near the booming research triangle of Chapel Hill, Durham, and Raleigh. Today, they use four acres of tilled ground to produce produce and flowers for a farmer's market, restaurants, and grocers. Alex and I talked today about how and why the farm went through some radical changes early on, how the Hits financed the farm by selling shares in the business, and how the Hits have brought on a partner to provide a smooth farm transition and practical retirement plan. Along the way, we hit on a bunch of practical tips for everything from growing celery to bookkeeping. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I did recording it, and we'll get right to it after a quick word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Fertrell.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Vermont Compost, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality composts and compost based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, Alex. I'm ha- happy to be here. It's it's great that you could join us today. You were when we were talking before we turned on the recording here, uh, you were saying it's a, it's a Friday afternoon. You guys have farmer's market tomorrow, but you were looking for a good excuse to be in the air conditioning. That's right. It's uh, 96 degrees and very humid outside today. So any excuse to get inside in the afternoon is a good one. I guess that's uh, farming in North Carolina, huh? That's that's why we like I like to stay up here. Yeah, for, and it's, up, you know, up in the with, north. With climate change, I think it's getting worse, uh, and it's something we're just gonna have to deal with. So I thought we'd start off by having you tell us uh, about your farm, where where you guys are located geographically, how many acres you're farming, what kind of crops you're doing, where you, where and how you're marketing your produce. All right, good. Well, we uh, this is our 34th year in production, and uh, we are in smack in the middle of central North Carolina. So we are zone, uh, it used to be zone 7A, going to zone 7B with climate change. And we own 26 acres, uh, and at one point, uh, we actually had a 10-acre business plan to start, and then we got up to five acres in production, and actually were able to scale back uh, and focus on markets in a different way. So we started with uh, pick your own berries, and so everything we were going to do was pick your own, and then that didn't really pan out. Partly because in the late 80s or the early late 70s, actually early 80s, here is when people started going to two-income families, and so there wasn't enough people to come out and actually pick 20 pounds of berries and then go home and turn them into jams and jellies, and so we had to quickly start picking and go into the wholesale market. So for a long time, we did wholesale and pick your own. And then as the farmer's market started to build, uh, we started to focus on farmer's market, uh, both as a way to do retail, but as a way to get really instant customer feedback so that we could change our business plan away from the pick your own berries. And so that's when we moved in the mid eighties, we moved into vegetables and cut flowers. And the cut flowers was the tail that wagged the dog for, so several years, uh, we literally scaled up from a 100-foot row of zinnias to two acres of cut flowers in production over two or three years because that was a huge demand, both wholesale and retail. And so it's been a sort of refinement over the years of that, but we still have this, uh, three prongs of marketing for us is farmer's market. We still have some grocery stores we uh, do 
uh, both flowers and produce for. And we have a bunch of restaurants we sell to. So those are our three areas of sales. And we like to have those different outlets to sort of move different products or different volumes or and get different feedback as to what's new and what's coming. You know, the restaurants for us are, are very much uh, new product development areas. Uh, and so now uh, we are between three and a half and four acres of soil worked. Uh, I always like to make that clear that it's not just drive-throughs and ponds and everything else. It's actual soil we turn over. Okay. And out of that, it's probably, and we double crop a little bit, so it might be four to four and a half acres of actual pr- pr- production. And so 70% of that goes through uh, the Carborough Farmer's Market, which is one of the great markets in the country. It's, I think, uh, on, on par with, not as big, but on par with Madison or Davis, California, or uh, many of the D.C. markets. It's really a fabulous market that is now 30 seven years old so it's one of the old ones and so it's you guys have kind of grown up with that we market we really did then. grow with the market and sort of and so part of our marketing thing is and the way we've been able to stay small I guess is we were both early here and could sort of choose some of the really prime marketing options and crops so we still we do wholesale lettuce for uh, a very large natural foods co-op, and we were you know early on, and so we had that niche. And my wife got the cut flower niche in there, and similar with farmers market, we really built a clientele that uh, still loves us, and their kids love us, and their grandkids love us now. You know, uh, after all those years. So it's been partly we were there early, and the same with the restaurants. We sort of developed a whole group of restaurants, and they have spun off. You know, their sous chefs go off and open a restaurant, and they come to us for produce. And so it's you know it's been an evolution that way. Being in on on that ground floor of the local foods movement made a big difference for you guys in the development of your business. I think it really did. Uh, you know, there was not when we first were here. There was a few young folks like us who were sort of stumbling around like we were, you know, because you can imagine 35 years ago, there was no one was doing this and there was no infrastructure and no support structure. And uh, so we were all kind of in the dark trying to figure it out. You know, organic was really not even uh, regulated hardly at that point. And so we were all trying to figure it out. So it uh, it was those of us who did figure it out quick then had a, an option. And at the same time, local food movement sort of started to show up and people started to think about it. But most of the farmers here were, you know, older country folks who were retired and they all did the same thing. You know, they, we always joke it was all maters, taters and beans and a little okra. Uh, and no one grew lettuce or arugula or spinach or anything. So that's where we gravitated towards was the different crops. Uh, and again, the, the restaurants really helped us because they would say, hey, you know, you tried to grow this. We went, I don't know. I'll see if I can. So it's, you know, it's been sort of a, we were able to be nimble, I guess, was part of it. And I suppose being in a, a fairly hip place like Raleigh, North Carolina makes a difference for you. Well, it does. You know, they, uh, the interesting thing here is uh, there, at least it used to be the case, I think still is, there's more PhDs per capita here than anywhere else because there's the Research Triangle Park and the, all the universities. And so, you know, all the great markets in the country are basically somewhere where there's a high education level and then probably high income level. 
Um, and so we happened to land in a good place. Did you did you happen to land there, or was that a place that you chose to be? So we we it was uh, my degree is in soils, uh, and Betsy and I graduated from Utah State University, so we were on the other side of the continent. But we were initially from this side of the world, and decided that maybe. Partly we should come back closer to family, and partly, as much as we loved the Intermountain West, we knew we couldn't afford land with irrigation water. And so we started looking, uh, thinking uh, East Coast, and you know, pre-computer, we did the best we could as far as market research in the library. I always say to the young kids, you remember what the library is? <laughs> and. And so through demographics and census data, you know, we, we realized climatically somewhere either in Virginia or North Carolina would allow us to grow about anything. And then census data was starting to show what is the case now is the I-85 corridor running down to Atlanta was really starting to boom. And we thought maybe Greensboro was the location. And when we got on the ground, we realized that the, the triangle, which is Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, was really the, the better market. So we literally... Um, drew a 20-mile radius around Chapel Hill and started looking for land. So it was, it was as conscious as we could. It would be a whole lot easier to do these days uh, with the data that's available to pinpoint a location. But but it just turned out we, we hit in a good place. It's really interesting to me because you don't hear a lot of people now talking about doing that kind of research, even though the data is so much more available. Um, and I remember there was a book that I that I read back in the early 1990s, um, something along the lines of how to make $100,000 growing you know, on, on 10 acres of vegetables. Oh, so that was Booker T. Wally. Okay. Uh, from uh, Tuskegee. And yeah, he was instrumental. Yeah, he, uh, in fact, we were at an early conference back in the probably back in 1980 when he was there, and he was, he was the first one to talk about that. He was talking about people went and fishing rights to the pond, and but that was his was really based quite a bit around pick your own, and that was as I said um, had been pretty successful up through the 70s. I think now pick your own really it's all about strawberries, and depending on where you are in the country, maybe blueberries, but. I don't think it's quite as strong as it used to be. But it, he he really emphasized that aspect of if you're going to do this kind of farming, you need to be in the right location. Exactly. I remember he had some very specifics. You know, you couldn't be more than 20 miles from town. You had to be on a paved road. But it was it was all about those demographics that, like you say, now are so easy to get to, which I think a lot of people ignore when they go out to buy their farm right? or they inherit a farm and go, well, I'm going to turn it into something. And, and a lot of times, and you're probably the same way when I teach, you know, I go, you know, it is location, 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 and you may need to, you know, sell that farm and buy another one uh, if it's not in the right place. Now, you guys have been on your original piece of land all 34 years, That's right? right? Uh huh. Absolutely. Now, was that, was that bare land when you bought it? Uh, was it bare land? As, yeah. I mean, did, as, it, as did it come with... It? Did it come with buildings? No. So uh, ours was a part of a, a far, a 108 acre farm that they had split into four pieces. And so our 26 acres had uh, just some open ground, but no infrastructure at all. So we literally have built it from the first building and the first irrigation pipe up, which has been a lot of work. But at the same time, we built it exactly the way we wanted it in the place we wanted it. Uh, and you weren't in that situation of trying to renovate an old barn or, or agonizing over whether to save the granary or not. Exactly. Exactly. And, and fortunately, you know, I came with uh, uh, quite a few skills. 
that allowed us to do that. Uh, you know, if you, uh, that's another thing I harp on all the time to, to students and, and new farmers is they have to learn some skills. I mean, you need to learn to be an electrician. You need to learn to be a plumber. You need to learn to be a mechanic. You have to be a carpenter because you can't hire all that stuff done, at least until you start making some money. And so we, uh, fortunately, were able to, to build, you know, Betsy and I have literally pounded every nail and, and done it all. But it has also been a leverage, you know, if you talk, think business-wise, it has been one of the great uh, levers we've had to sort of build wealth uh, that we wouldn't have had otherwise if we'd had to spend all that money hiring someone to do it. Yeah. And certainly being able to construct the exact farmstead that you needed, I think is really important, especially on a, in a very small operation. Right. There's not, there's not that kind of, there's not that, would you call it slush? I mean, there's just not, there's not a lot of extra to go around to, to, to monkey with. No. And the other thing is you can uh, do it in parts. You know, if you hire someone and they come and they, they need to come finish the job. And we could cash flow it pretty much. And so, you know, we, like on our packing shed, uh, we, you know, spent 5000 or 8000 and got to a point, got it dried in. And then the next year we did the walk-in coolers and did some other stuff. And then the next, you know, so we could, we could do it in parts as cash money was there so that we didn't have to go into debt, which is, you know, a critical thing for farmers. So did you guys avoid going into debt as you bought the farm and, and built it out? So, uh, you know, we uh, came from, you know, our background was uh, we are first-generation farmers. Uh, I have a cousin who does 2,000 acres of soybeans in Mississippi, but that's as, as close to farming as my family uh, has been for multiple generations. So we started off from scratch. There was no family land. There was no family money, which is a good thing. Uh, and so we got the place going. We, uh, you know, no bank was going to lend us money. We were 25 right out of college. And so we incorporated, formed a corporation, uh, wrote a prospectus, uh, and sent it around to folks who were interested in, you know, we knew from either working with them or some situation. And we ended up with uh, 18 shareholders that invested, you know, three to five thousand dollars each. So it wasn't a huge amount, but it gave us uh, eighty thousand uh, dollars seed money to do a down payment on land and buy irrigation and a tractor and all that kind of stuff. And and so it was sort of now that I think about it in, in hindsight, it was sort of early CSA. It was pre, you know, it was before. It was kind of like people buying a share of the production, but in this case, they were buying a share of the farm. And, right. But it was because they were interested in the concept of small farming. And it wasn't huge amounts of money, you know, so it wasn't like they had their whole savings invested in us. And if we went belly up, we'd sell the land, they'd get their money back. So it was a safe investment because it wasn't a service business where it was going into salaries and rent or something, and it was gone. So um, that's how we got going. And so there was debt there in a way that we had to pay them back eventually. So we, we have now, of course, bought them all out, and we own it free and clear. But we were able to do it sort of one shareholder at a time over a number of years. And it didn't come with the kinds of monthly mortgage payments that you would have had exactly. if you had simply taken out a loan on that money. So you didn't have, it's not like you had debt service, you had debt that eventually had to get paid back. Exactly, exactly. And so for us, it was a way to, you know, again, reduce the cash flow that we had to have. So how did that work on a, on a nuts and bolts level? Did you, you mean, you talked about a prospectus. I mean, you had to, I'm sure had to follow some, some legalities exactly. with so we, that. And, and, you know, we, of course I studied, um, 
the inspiration for us, uh, you know, we all have our various inspirations. The inspiration for us was when I was in high school, I worked uh, at, a, at a backpacking store. And this was a, a guy who had come back from Vietnam and, you know, had about 10 cents to rub together. And he got a couple of his friends together and to get enough money up to you know, open this backpacking store and, you know, get a few water bottles and some sleeping bags and stuff. And by the time I worked for him, which was five years later, he was the 10th largest backpacking store in the country. And he had bought them all out and owned it free and clear. I said, well, hell, why can't I do that? And so we had this idea, and I studied up on different corporate structures and had decided that a subchapter S corporation uh, was the thing to do. And so I went to a lawyer, and the first lawyer said, I don't know how to do that, but I do know someone who does. So he sent me to another one, and the guy said, okay. And he sort of interviewed us and said, oh, sure, here we go. So we you know, went through a lawyer and, and got incorporated, and that cost us 500 bucks. And so then, yeah, there was a legal structure, which then you know we... People had to sign agreement forms and they would share the stock. And so, you know, so, but we were guided down the way by someone who knew what they were doing. And so I, you know, a lot of times I tell, uh, again, new folks, I said, you need to get a good lawyer and you need to get a good accountant so that they can keep track of all that stuff that you don't need to worry about too much. And yeah, and somebody that you trust and somebody who's, I think, takes you seriously too. I think that's one of the hardest things when you're trying to get in, trying to get professionals out there to service your business is to have somebody when you're, when you're doing something that's a little off the wall, like organic vegetable farming. Yeah. Yeah. to to take you seriously. And I think I would think that would have been especially so back in the mid 80s. It was. I fortunately, you know, there's always fortunate things that happen. And like I said, the first, you know, the first lawyer could have, you know, tried to stumble through it and then cost me a lot of money. But he was honest enough to say, I don't know, but I do know someone good. And then we actually had a friend who worked for an accountant. And, and I said, well, ask him if he knows anyone who, you know, really knows farm stuff. Uh, and she came back and said, well, he, he does that. He does that. And I said, okay. So I sort of went and interviewed him. But, you know, again, it was fortunate. We had, this has been the problem now is they're all retiring on us. You know, uh, we had the same accountant for 30 years and he decided it was time to retire. And I gave him hell for that. But uh, he passed this on to the folks who bought his business and, and, and it has been pretty good. They're not quite as good, uh, interesting enough. Um, <laughs> But they're fascinated by us, and so I think that helps. I think part of it is they need to be good, but they have to have an interest in what you're doing, even if they don't totally understand it at first. Right. And so with those with those shareholders, then did you, you did you just set up a set percentage rate per year that they were going to get back when you paid them back, or how did you well, how did you make this work for them financially? Uh, you know, and we of course in our perspective did returns on investment and everything else, and and never hit a single number that we forecast. Um, and and so I would have to write these very interesting letters every year with their tax return documents telling them why we weren't doing very well. But we could lose money with the best of them, and so they all got um, they they were able to write off the entire value of their stock uh, back then. You could write off active losses against uh, or passive losses against active gains, and because they weren't active shareholders, you know they, they didn't have uh, that kind of loss. But they could write it all off. So they, the first thing was they wrote off an equivalent of what they invested. And then when we bought them back, we had to do an evaluation, of course, of the business and then pan per share what the value of the share was. So they initially put it in at a dollar a share and they all got out mostly at about a dollar ten a share. So they got they got 110% back plus 100% they wrote off in tax write-off. So 
in many ways, I got a double, a double return. I could see why you'd have to get some help making sure that you understood all of the parameters with this, because that's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot, there's a lot to think about. There. Oh yeah. And, and for sure, the, when it came to the tax stuff, I wanted to make sure I had an accountant that completely understood it and got it right so that they didn't go, wait a second, what's this number on this form you sent me? Um, it doesn't look right to me. And no one ever said this is, you know, isn't right. So the accountant was key to that. I keep all the books and, I just, and give him the numbers, but he interprets them as to how the tax law has to be. Right. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, to do that bookkeeping yourself, I, I think gives you that kind of day to day interaction with the numbers and, and an understanding of where and how the money's flowing through your business. Right. And but that's the that, cash flow thing, which is, you know, which I think you have to have complete grip on. Uh, but the actual tax stuff, because it's so convoluted now, is a whole other game. Yeah, that's definitely I we never did our own taxes on the farm. We've always shuffled those off on somebody else, yep. but always did our own bookkeeping. Uh, when When we didn't, it was a lot of times we found that bookkeeping portion was something that if I had a professional doing the taxes, that was great because they only needed to understand they needed to understand the data that I gave them, but trying to have somebody else actually do the bookkeeping and the categorizing was a real challenge because then they had to understand every line on every receipt. And unless they were enmeshed in the business, that was very difficult. And they needed to know, you know, you got to put it in the right slot so that the numbers that come out make sense to you for business making decisions. Uh, You know, like we have our, you know, we have, like seed with seeds and annual plants, of course, we have broken down into flowers and vegetables. And, you know, we have a lot of things broken down in ways so that we can compare and see where we are year to year or week to week and make decisions on what we need to change, you know, which uh, uh, just someone poking the numbers into a, into a QuickBooks or something that doesn't quite understand that. Well, and I think that's why it's so important to go against what your accountant will oftentimes recommend, uh, which is to, to not have too many categories. Oh, yeah. I, I, I almost I think that I drive them totally crazy, but, which is appropriate. Yeah. That's, that's your job because yeah, you right. need that information to understand your business. I, I always say, I mean, what's, what's the purpose of a schedule F, right? It's to, it's so that the government can try to detect tax fraud. That's what they're really looking for is things that stand out like a sore thumb. It doesn't have anything to do with helping you to understand your cash flow or where your expense centers are, what's actually going on in your business. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, when I teach record keeping, I say, look, I'm teaching you record keeping so you can make business decisions. This has nothing to do with what you're going to actually take to the accountant. I mean, it has a lot to do with what you take to the accountant, but, but I'm trying to teach you to, to have stuff so that you can make a good business decision. I always say the same thing even about organic certification records or for folks that are that are doing a gaps audit. You want to make those records work for you. That's right. Don't just don't do them for the auditor. Don't do them for the certifier or the or the tax guy. Do them do them for yourself and then let them go work to get the information out of there. Absolutely. That's something that I think is a a theme that I've seen and you've mentioned a couple of times here even just in the the beginning of this interview is this this record keeping idea. Can you tell us a little bit more about the systems that you're using for that? Because I think that's been, from what I understand, an important part of you guys succeeding on such a small acreage. Yeah, you know, for us to, you know, there's now three of us who are full-time, make our entire living, no outside employment on three and a half acres in production. So to do that, we've, you know, got to squeeze it all. 
and not have any wasted space or not much wasted space. You know, there's always R&D material that flops that doesn't make you any money, but we try not to do too much of that. Um, so, you know, record keeping, as you know, multiple facets, um, it's, but for us, it really starts with the production plan, which we do all on spreadsheets uh, so that we can know exactly how much of what is going on the ground and where. And then, of course, the important part is taking notes on that. And then the market records are really difficult. And so we have uh, really those are those are paper paper forms that we fill out as to what goes and what comes back and what sold and didn't and different notes. But the important part of that is uh, all of those numbers that then become financial numbers go into QuickBooks. Uh, and as we were talking you know, a second ago, it's how you set up those accounts so that it comes out to you the way you want in, in reports. But so all of our markets are entered basically as a sales receipt so that then all the numbers are there. And we track uh, everything by variety. So while we grow 20 to 25 varieties of tomatoes, I can tell you exactly how many pounds of Cherokee purples we sold and what the average price was and where we sold them. And, you know, we can break it down, as you know, with QuickBooks multiple ways. So we track everything by variety. Same with cut flowers. Uh, to some degree, some of the cut flowers, while they're... 10 varieties of Lysianthus, we just have a line for Lysianthus because that's not quite as important as the different varieties of tomatoes. And so it's just, a, you know, a lot of it is uh, systems that we have to make sure the stuff actually gets written down and then can be converted into some hopefully electronic way. But the most difficult one, that I, and I haven't found a great system that I like beyond what I use, the difficult one is the daily work records. You know, how many hours were spent weeding carrots or picking tomatoes or whatever, uh, and right. when irrigation was done, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I still do that by hand in, in, a, in a calendar format. Uh, I know there are a few, you know, I don't use a handheld device. I think that's where most folks are going or, or carrying a tablet around with them. But Or trying to go. I don't know a whole lot of successful implementations of that. I don't either. And if they do, they, you know, it falls off the tractor and they drive over it and it's in the mud or something. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, There are some interesting sort of scanning software that can scan your notes and then digitize it for you, but I haven't messed around with that. But but the bottom line... (laughs) And I know that none of those could read my handwriting anyways. (laughs) Exactly. So the bottom line is you got to record it and and make sure you do it. And um, so basically it's the production uh, plan the daily work records, the market records, and then the actual financial parts fold into QuickBooks, and, and then we work out of, uh, reports out of that. So you're a small farm with three full-time employees uh, making a living on three and a half acres. You, It's not like you've got a whole lot of extra time in your day, but you're recording. I mean, you just, you said 25 different varieties of tomatoes, and you know how much each one of those you're selling. How do you make time to do that record keeping? Because that's the biggest thing I hear from farmers. They just don't have time. And so what I tell folks is you have to, you know, you have to be regimented. So you need to set up a time. And and, because if you say, well, I'll do it and I'll do it next week, I'll do it next week, then it's the end of the year. And to enter particularly sales records is a huge job. The expenses are not a huge job. You know, you only you only buy so many pounds of cover crop seed. But the sales records, that's a constant thing, you know, particularly when you have multiple outlets like we do, you know, 10 restaurants and two grocery store accounts and two farmers markets. That's a lot of data to enter. So I do it on Sundays. Uh, it takes me about an hour, sometimes two, 
to do all the Sunday paperwork, and that includes writing paychecks and, you know, depositing taxes and, uh, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the actual time entering stuff in the QuickBooks is maybe, you know, half hour to an hour, depending on the on the week. So not that bad, but you have to do it. Uh, and occasionally something happens on a Sunday. We've got to go to an event, so I don't get to it. So I got to do two weeks, you know, in a row. But the bottom line is, I tell folks you've got to set up a time to do it. The other stuff, you know, the notes on hours and stuff. You know, you flop down at the end of the day in a chair and you have a beer, and it takes you know two minutes to write who worked what and what we did that day. And it's just little notes turned under this cover crop, sprayed BT on tomatoes. You know, it's just those quick notes. And it just takes a couple of seconds, but you have to do it, you know, every day. Then you just have to get yourself to do it. Well, and I suppose if you if you tie it together with beer, that probably makes it easier. Always, always makes it easier with a beer. You know, and then there's things, as you probably had set up at your pack and shed, you know, we've got a big dry erase board at the pack and shed and yep. everyone is trained that as soon as the beets are washed and roll into the cooler, it's recorded on the board how many bunches it was, you know, so that it, so that, that stuff is caught immediately uh, and not someone eventually will get to a clipboard and write it down. So, you know, there's certain systems you come up with for that to work. You know, one of the things that we found with the whiteboard that was really valuable was taking pictures uh-huh. of the whiteboard. So that was our way of capturing all of the information that had been written on it for the day. Rather than having to transcribe it right then and there, uh, we could snap a picture with a digital camera or with a cell phone and uh, and transmit it that way and have it available to us electronically when we wanted it. Yeah, and Jenny, who is our third partner now, we're in a, in a process of sort of transitioning the farm eventually to a young woman who's been with us five years. And of course, she's 31 and much more nimble in the brain than we are. But she takes pictures of everything with herself. Okay. You know, so she's she's definitely doing that all the time. And then she can, and she actually carries her cell phone in the field. Uh, she can, you know, pull it up and say, oh, no, this is when we said we were going to do this. So, so yeah, you know, there's uh, lots of ways to do that. But I think the thing is to come up with a system that you actually do and the times that you'll do it. And, and once farmers sort of make themselves get to that point where it's not onerous, then they'll actually do it. And I think recognizing the value and making sure that you're recording things that are actionable. Right. And like you said, I mean, having that data on Cherokee purple tomatoes gives you a lot of information about how much Cherokee purple you're going to grow in the future. And right. Particularly when you're, you know, when you're limited on space like we are and there's only going to be 2,000 feet a row of tomatoes every year, then we want to grow the ones that are making us the most money and not ones we're having to, you know, sell at a discount or something like that. So... We'll, when we're doing planning decisions, we'll actually look at all that and go, well, we need it. Sometimes it gets down to we need, you know, 11 more plants of this one, which means 11 of someone else has to go away somewhere, you know. And so, but we're maximizing that footage, particularly in protected culture uh, when they're undercover. We have to maximize that, the value of that. How much ground do you have undercover? So we've got uh, a half an acre of hay groves. Uh, the big multi-day high tunnels. And then we've got um, six uh, Elliott Coleman-esque sliding tunnels uh, that are 16 by 48. So if you count the, if you count their moves, there's a quarter acre under the smaller tunnels and then a half acre under the big tunnels. So three quarters of an acre altogether. Wow. So that would be almost a fifth of your, of what you got in production. Exactly. 
are you using those primarily for season extension or is that getting you better quality product and helping you prevent foliar diseases or what's, uh, it, what's the it, primary motivation you know, it, there? The, the, the smaller uh, sliding panels are really the season extension, both spring and fall. And then the hay groves uh, are really to reduce uh, rainfall issues and, and disease issues. So we have a quarter acre that's just tomatoes and then another quarter acre that's flowers that don't like to be wet when they're blooming for petal quality and stuff. Right. So And so, you know, we grow cover crops in them and do all that stuff, and then we cover them at the last second. And so a lot of the flowers, for instance, are in, are planted and been cultivated, and, and when they start to shoot up flower stalks, then we cover them. Because I want to get as much natural rainfall and all in there as I can before we have to really start irrigating. And the same with the tomatoes. We'll turn the cover crops under and almost get the beds almost ready, and then we'll cover them about a week before planting to ensure that we can get everything done on time and get them in, and then they stay covered until the end of the season, and then we uncover them again and, and go back into a cover crop. And that hay grove, is a, that's a set place. You're not move, the hay groves don't move from place to place every year. Well, it's know, just one solid. That's an interesting thing because, you know, hay grove was developed in England really for strawberry culture, and, and they're easy to move. You know, the legs screw in the ground and they unscrew, and you can move them to the next site fairly easily. And we had initially thought we would um, move one quarter acre unit every year, sort of leapfrog them around the farm and follow our original rotation plan. And because we can, you know, two people can build a quarter acre in 40 hours. It's not that hard to do. Um, But we also then realized those legs screw in the ground 30 inches deep and you find every rock that you never knew was down there. So so we actually moved one set and realized, you know, this is going to be a pain. So we now have three sets of legs permanently in place and we just move the hoops around. So we actually have a three-year rotation and just move the hoops around because that's really easy to do. So that keeps you from having that tomatoes on tomatoes on tomatoes right. issue. Right. So we have a, a year of tomatoes, a year of flowers, and then a year of rest where we actually grow two or three cover crops in a row and actually solarize. We actually have gotten to where we're solarizing that field for fusarium uh, control. So we have a, a you know, and two in very intensive years and then a very intensive year of soil building. And then we go back in the tomato. So the solarizing step, I'm really, I'm always interested in that on an organic farm because it's really, I mean, you're not just, of course, controlling the fusarium, you're, con- you're eliminating everything. It's, well, that's it's there great when weed you... control too. I mean, it really knocks the weed seeds out uh, in a big way. And of course it will knock out uh, some of your soil life, particularly the the trickier one, I think is the rhizobium bacteria. Uh, we're, we're aware of that. And um, of course we, we raised turkeys for 10 years. We're, we're out of the turkey business, but we raised pasture turkeys for 10 years. And so we would move them into the that field after solarization to sort of re-inoculate the field with all the good stuff out of their gut. Um, and we're not doing that anymore. So we're keeping an eye on it. The rhizobium bacteria still seems to be hanging around pretty good, but we may start uh, doing some applications of compost to sort of re-inoculate or make sure that we're inoculated well uh, after that solarization period. So the solarization, you're just laying clear plastic down directly on the soil right. for that? Right. So it needs to be, you know, it needs to be fairly well tilled. Can't be like a big clumpy. So 
Well, the disc doesn't work very well. You pretty much need to rototill it so that it's fairly uniform in its texture. And it needs to be moist because if it's dry, it won't uh, transmit the heat as well down into the soil. And then clear plastic with the edges buried so that you really can heat it up uh, as hot as possible. And, it, and then, of course, it has to be, you know, we're hot down here, so it's not so bad for us. But it needs to be in at least four really hot weeks, um, anywhere from four to eight weeks. So for us, that's mid-June to mid-August. Okay. And you found that that gives you good control on that it fusarium. It has really knocked out the fusarium. Uh, and the fusarium is a weird thing. You know, it's one of those, it's like pythium and some others. It's always in the soil. It's always there. But then it can express itself under certain weird conditions. And we never really saw it or thought it was a problem in the tomatoes until we started growing everything under cover. And I think there's some relationship between dryness in the soil and just ir- just being alive by irrigation that sort of makes it express itself in a way that it didn't do it when we grew all our tomatoes just out in, out in the open. Uh, and that's when we first started seeing it. And we uh, we actually did some of the real early grafted tomato work research here on the farm for about three years with NC State and never really thought we had an issue with fusarium and didn't think grafted tomatoes were a thing. And then this popped up and I thought, hmm, maybe we got to think about some grafted tomatoes. So we tried to graft our own and screwed that up totally. And then tried to hire someone to do it and they screwed it up. And so we then we realized that the solarization would work for us. So that's where we're at. But we also may eventually, you know, people are getting better at grafting tomatoes, greenhouses. So we may, we may go to that on uh, a few varieties anyway. You know, the heirlooms, most of the heirlooms have no resistance, so that's our big... And that's your big tomato market, right? It is. I mean, we, you know, we still grow a hybrid red, and, uh, and of course, like Sun Gold, everyone has to grow Sun Gold, and uh, we grow a hybrid Roma, but all the other colors are heirlooms and we were really the first ones to sort of do that here and that is big particularly with the restaurants is a big market um so the beauty of at least our number one tomato which is cherokee purple is it's actually resistant to fusarium so we're, we're lucky there but some of the others the pinks and the yellows and some of the others we have troubles with i also saw that you were doing when i was when i was flipping through your website you're doing some ginger in the greenhouse how's that been going for you you know the ginger has been a great crop um that was another one, you know, Johnny's came to us five or six years ago when we were starting to think, you know, see if there it was a possibility and said, if we sent you rootstock, would you grow it? And he said, sure, why not? And it actually works, you know, really well for us. Uh, it's, it's the baby ginger, so you can't get it to mature ginger where you can store it. So you pretty much have to sell the whole crop uh, in mid-September to early December. So there's, you know, there's a. So you get you get some storage out of it then. Well, we pretty much dig it as it, you know, every week we dig it uh, for what we're going to sell that week. You can you can sell a little bit of it, but we have to have it out of the ground here by pretty much first of December or maybe the first week because it could freeze in the ground even in the tunnel. Um, and it, we're plenty hot here, and what the tunnel does for us actually more is we can actually have a little shade cloth on it. Uh, because what we were finding and other folks in the southeast was it was almost too hot and we were getting a lot of uh, tip burn on the leaves and that kind of thing. So we put it under some shade cloth and that you know made, made all the parts work out well. Oh, that's interesting. Now, you don't have problems with it being too hot underneath your, your hay grows for the tomatoes, do we you? We don't, and we're using the... Uh, uh, 
what the hell is it called? Luminex. The, it's there. It reduces the high heat load a little bit. Um, and luminance. Is that a particular kind of plastic, it, it, or is that a kind of plastic called luminance? And it reduces either UVA or UVB. I can't remember which. And so on really hot days, it can be as much as five degrees cooler there. And we're using no end walls and no side walls, so we have a lot of airflow through there as well. But that's going to be an issue, you know, this is one of the climate change issues, particularly with tomatoes and peppers, is going to be pollination problems and hot weather that, that we never used to really have much issue with here in the southeast. But now consistently, we're either day temps or night temps too high. And I think folks are going to have, we can't, we can't only move them so far forward, you know, and and then we're in the freezing temperature. So, uh you know. Well, and and even then, um, you know, you're setting. Even if you move your your plants forward, you're still setting fruits in there uh, all summer long. Right. You know, and I know in our in our high tunnels, if when we when we were first getting used to managing them in the Midwest, and and if we didn't if we weren't timely on the ventilation, you could actually see like a strip along the tomatoes where where there weren't any tomatoes. Sure. Because the because we'd killed all the pollen. Yeah. Uh, by overheating in there. What's happening to us is we are consistently now, which is what we had last month, we're consistently having uh, some really high temperatures in June, you know, up into up in near 100 that we never used to have before. And and so while we're setting a lot of fruit in May, we're also setting a lot of fruit in June. So by first week of August, there won't be any tomatoes, but by then we're pretty much out of the tomato. That, that crop's done, so... We, we've okay. stopped doing any fall. You know, we've stopped doing August and September tomatoes for us altogether. Just based on that, on that heat uh, issue. Then, and we never could summer. really grow, uh, for some reason for us, I never really could grow a really vigorous plant late in the season. They just wanted to be sort of tall and spindly because it's so hot. And so we never really got the fruit set or the yield that I thought we should get. Uh, and so we just said, let's concentrate on the early ones and, and not try to fight through a fall crop. But part of that is because it's so hot. Alex, we're going to take a quick break here to get a word from our sponsors. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Fertrell, a friend of nature since 1946. Fertrell has a full service agronomy department that provides support to their nationwide network of customers, dealers, and distributors. And Fertrell is about far more than just any one type of crop. They work with commodity and forage crops, large scale vegetable and fruit farms, and small scale and backyard growers, as well as livestock producers. No matter your level of experience, Fertrell has the products and the knowledge to help you grow healthy, natural plants and animals. Their full line of soil amendments, dry blend and liquid fertilizers, and weed, pest, and disease control products for organic production means that they can help you to assemble a comprehensive system for organic farming. The Fertrell Company knows that healthy soils are the foundation for healthy crops, not just from a philosophical standpoint or for maximizing nutrition, but also because building healthy soils sets the stage for harvest efficiency, post-harvest quality, pest resistance, and succession planting. Fertrell, better naturally. Fertrell.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. 
I used Vermont's compost fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew some great transplants with it. I mean, really great transplants year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food waste to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that their Fort VMix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I have always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent, fantastic product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. And now we'll get back to our show with Alex Hip from Peregrine Farm. Now, are you guys going through the winter with your your greens? I mean, I would think in a 7B with a, with high tunnels, you would be close to being able to even do flowers in the wintertime. You know, we are growing. Uh, it gets amazingly cold here. But um, we are going through the winter now. Um, and it's easy enough to do, you know, hardy greens, you know, kale and collards and uh, spinach and that kind of thing. And Betsy has a few cut flower crops that do really well in those low light conditions like anemones and ranunculus and, and that sort of thing. So uh, we are doing a mix of that and we have, you know, a certain amount of storage crops of winter squash and, you know, Jewish Lamar chokes and that kind of thing. And our market goes year round. So uh, we are doing, for a long time, we didn't, we quit first of October and didn't start back up till March. But now with three of us trying to make a living here, we pretty much have to go year round. Okay. So that's really been driven by, by your efforts to bring somebody else into the operation. Exactly. And exactly. It's kind of like adding broiler chickens to a dairy farm when you want the, when you want the sun to be able to stay on the farm. Exactly. I get that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because otherwise we were, you know, we just Betsy and, so for years and years and years, it was Betsy and I, of course, full time. And then we had two seasonal part-timers that got 30 hours a week each from, mid-March to mid-October, and that worked great for years, and that's when we would quit at least selling. You know, there's always something growing, but we, we weren't selling. Uh, and then now that we've been in this process of bringing Jenny on, uh, you know, there's got to be enough work to keep her alive. And you guys are bearing that burden additionally because for it to keep Jenny alive, it's got to be, you guys have to be engaged with it. Right, exactly, exactly. Now, as, you know, time goes on, and particularly now that's the case, she pretty much runs all the winter stuff. I mean, we're we're around, and we have to go to market with her a certain amount, but um, she's at least managing the field part of it. And then what will happen in, over, over the next couple of years is she's, and she pretty much does it now, but over the next couple of years, she'll uh, sort of really be running all the field stuff. Uh, at least vegetable wise and I will you know I'll be maintenance guy and tractor guy and uh, but she'll really run the crew and and increasingly make more and more decisions about you know what we're going to grow or how much of it we're going to grow right now that we sit down together you know uh, at the at the computer with the spreadsheet open her her notebook my notebook as we do the, the year's plan and sort of design it together but increasingly she'll do more of that on her own and do you have a transition plan so they, for her i mean it's yeah i mean this that, that, this is it uh, so we have no kids so we don't have that complication as to who gets what so um 
Jenny is basically the transition plan. And we don't plan to quit. We just want to slow down and, you know, travel while we still can and want to and do that kind of thing. Because, you, know, you know, we like what we're doing. We love where we live. We don't plan, you know, we built the house. Our, you know, don't want to leave the house, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, uh, Jenny is eventually, it'll be hers if she makes it all that, you know, she stays there long enough. Um, it'll eventually be hers, but over time, she'll take over more and more and more of the actual running of the whole program. Okay. And then will she be taking over the business at the same time that she's taking over the running, or is she really coming on as a, as a manager for a business that you no, and Betsy so, are still going to own? So, you know, she, we built her a place. She's living here at the farm. We built her a place to live and, and, uh, she's on salary and she has, uh, all the utilities and health insurance pay for all that stuff. And then she's also earning a uh, uh, certain amount of stock every year. So that over time, our number of shares will decrease and her number of shares will increase to eventually she owns it. Or it's 50% on her. Or we die and she gets it all. You know, depends on how you look at that. It's an interesting advantage, I think, of having set up as a corporation is that you do have kind of a way to that's already there yeah, to gradually there. transition, exactly. transition ownership. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and there's some th- you know, fine tunings we're working on. We, we need to go talk to our lawyer about some fine tunings on how to make sure all that works out to both of our advantage. Uh, but yeah, there is a mechanism that makes it fairly easy to do. Now, of course, like you said, not having kids makes it a little bit easier to do this kind of transition. But what sorts of challenges have you run up to up against as you've been working to have somebody else gradually start taking over management of parts of your operation? Well, you know, uh, Betsy always jokes that it's like getting married again. Um, And so, you know, there there are some relationship issues there that you have to sort of figure out. You know, everyone has to get along. But we've worked really hard on... um, Transparency, you know, making sure that we're, we're all on the same page and that we're, everyone's saying exactly what they're feeling and not sort of holding stuff back. We have weekly business meetings where we go through the numbers, talk about where we are, you know, year to date and who's, you know, what, what accounts are doing well and which ones aren't and which crops are doing, you know, all that stuff. So we're trying to stay totally as current as we can. Um, and then, you know, I think the classic thing for most farmers is it's hard for them to let go. Uh, control. Um, and so occasionally I step on her toes when I, you know, jump to a conclusion or say something that, you know, she's already figured out, just hadn't told me that's what she's figured out, you know. So there's, you know, there's those sort of communication issues. Um, but, you know, we've been at it long enough that, it, um, you know, it's easy enough. I, it's fairly easy for me to give up control. I'm, I'm okay with that. I think that's really interesting, you know, that that transparency piece and that just I think sometimes it's so easy in farm relationships and and when you have those issues of control to not just you you have to work hard on giving people benefit of the doubt. You know, it's easy to just get in that habit of assuming that things are somebody's withholding information or kind of these these um, these wrong stories about what's going on or even putting any story on it at all instead of just taking it for what it is. Or or assuming they know and they really don't. Right. And that's part of it. You know, she's been here five years. And so there's a lot of times I go, well, she's clearly, you know, we've talked about that 50 times. So she must know it, you know, and then 
and something doesn't happen, and I'll say, well, you know what? She goes, well, you never told me how to do so and so. And so you, you, what you really realize is that, as you know, there is so many, which is what actually makes folks like you and me love farming is that, you know, it's a complicated business and it's the challenge and it's the excitement and figuring out the problem. But there are so many moving parts um, that it's hard for someone to get all that into their brain, particularly if, you know, in a, in a year or two or three. Uh, and so we're trying to come up with ways to make sure that, um, you know, it's a comfortable place to ask a question or, you know, that old thing, there's no stupid questions. Go ahead and ask so that we make sure. And really meaning it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then Betsy, you know, for instance, thing like Betsy said the other day, she goes, you know, you're going to have to sit down and write an entire notebook on where the hell everything is. Because, you know, the other day there was an irrigation thing and, and I wasn't here and they didn't know where the valve was to turn something off. And I was like, hmm, never thought about that, you know. But there's so much of that stuff about here's the panel box for this, and here, you know, this line's buried underground here, and so you know, and so it's good that we're not actually trying to leave and say, okay, you know, on such and such a date we're gone, we're going to be here forever. So it's not like there's no one to consult with, but there will be increasingly times when we're gone for a week or two, and she needs to be able to do something, you know. Well, and I think it, it points to, and you talk about sitting down and trying to remember where everything is and, you know, what, what wires are connected to what and which circuit panel controls what building. I think uh, some of the best advice I got was from when I was starting my farm was from Tom Franson, who's a hog farm, nor, organic hog farmer in Northeast Iowa. He said, Chris, the every time you, you open the ground or do anything where you're burying cables uh, or wiring stuff up, make sure that you make a map. Right. Make sure you know where everything goes and kind of document that as you go along. Yeah. And, and, of course, Rather now, than, uh, you're, you know, with pictures, increasingly, particularly when I build buildings or do anything, I take pictures of it so that there's a record of exactly where the hell it was or what, it, you know, what the plumbing looked like inside that wall. Um, and, you know, but part of it too is, and this is a thing in transition that I have been uh, talking about a lot lately is there is an adventure that happens to people who start farms, you know, they struggle and they lived in tents and they, you know, everything broke and the pipes were, you know, there's, there's an, you know, and at the time it was a pain in the ass, but it was an adventure. And it was the adrenaline that got you up in the morning at three o'clock to go out and cover stuff when the storm was coming in. And so with Jenny or anyone else that's taken over a farm, a lot of that's done. You know, there's no building of new buildings. There's, you know, uh, sure tractors will break down and stuff will happen, but somehow they need that adventure. Otherwise, they'll be bored. They may not think of it as being bored at the time, but they'll be bored if, you know, if they, if they don't have a challenge that makes their heart race every once in a while. Uh, and so there's a feet to the fire thing here that has to happen. I think it just can't be sort of, you know, an easy deal done so that all of a sudden here they go and they're making money. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how we do that with Jenny. How does she have her, her adventure and, you know, how does she become the one that if the crop fails that she may not get paid, you know, uh, but at the same right. not, at the same time, not screw her or have her, you know, take, take advantage of her. So that's a fine line there. Have you had any ideas about about how you do that? Because I think when you talk about that, it actually seems like that real difference between being an employee 
and being the the entrepreneur exactly. in the business. Exactly. So, you know, some of it is she has brought crops and crop ideas to us that are hers. Uh, and then we said, sure, let's try that. And so you know, some of that is managing those crops on their own. And then um, some of that is we're eventually, I think, where we're going to get to is we're, we're going to, of course, step down and take less money, but we're going to say, you, you know, you're going to guarantee us X amount of money every year. And so that may mean that if something happens, she doesn't get as much money that year. Right now, she's guaranteed X amount of money. So I, right. I think there's a financial sort of thing that has to be put in there. And that's part of what we want to talk through with the lawyer about what's the, not only the legal way to do that, but how do we structure that in, a, in an agreement so that it's understood. And I think that's where it's really important when you go to the attorney to kind of know what's the what's the outcome that you're trying to create, even if you don't know exactly what the mechanism is, uh, rather than going and trying to say, hey, what's a fair way to do this right. to really, I think, figure some of that stuff out, uh, in part because I think, again, that farm economy is different and, and dealing with the kind of people who want to be organic vegetable farmers is is not the same necessarily as dealing with somebody that wants to take over your McDonald's franchise. Sure. Because if you're doing that, you're just about making money. But, the, you know, as you know, it's, um, most of the reason you're here is for, for the life. Uh, and then hopefully there's enough money in the, in the long run to do what you need to do. How did you guys pick out Jenny? How did, I mean, she's been with you for five, years. five uh, years. Well, you know, we've had a ton of people work for us. Uh, and half of them uh, who've worked a full season have gone on to start their own farms. And so we've had a lot of really good people here that are doing well on their own places. And part of it was we just weren't ready uh, yet. And and um, part of it was, you know, she uh, is really uh, carefully thought and, um, and is a planner. Uh, and so we... She was, she'd been here two years and I said, so what's, you know, what do you, what's going on? She goes, well, I'm thinking about going on to so-and-so. I said, well, what if I don't want to lose you? She goes, well, I just can't work for wages anymore. I said, well, let's start talking, you know, let's talk about this. So, um, the first thing I said is, you know, if you're going to be here year round, they have to make this much more money. I said, so you need, you know, here's how many beds you're going to have. You need to come up with a plan. So she went back and came over the plan and said, okay, let's see if it works. So that was our first winter back to year round production. And her plan, of course, didn't work 100%, but we actually made the money. I said, okay, so now we know financially we can actually make this thing work. So now let's work on the other parts of the agreement, you know. So, um, and we said, you know, the thing, the main thing, we said, this is going to be a long-term thing. It's going to take years for us to go through this process. It's not going to happen overnight. And she, you know, understands that and is patient about that. Uh, so, you know, it was just, she came to us in the right place in the right time. I think was the biggest part. It wasn't like you guys were hanging out of shingles saying no. it's time to sell no, the business. In fact, we had, we had said we weren't going to pass it on to anyone because we knew that this was going to be a, a job to do this. Uh, and we thought, well, the, you know, increasingly, you know, you realize that, you know, you're getting slower and creakier and can't do as much stuff. And so it would help to have just someone around here, period, whether they're actually farming or not, um, to, you know, keep an eye on us when we're 80. And so, um, you know, there was multiple things about having some community out here with us and uh, and keeping a vet business viable. Because we've been fortunate 
enough to have saved enough money that we can actually retire and not have to sell the place. So it's not like we're having to do this to, you know, have a cash flow. Um, but part of it was to, you know, you know, when there's a storm, who's going to run the chainsaw to cut the trees down and stuff? You know, when I'm 75, it's that kind. Right. It's that kind. Of, so we're trying to be forward thinking on it, and we knew that if we waited till we were 65 to start thinking about it, it was too late. Uh, so we started thinking about it when we were, you know, 55 or 56. Uh, so that by the time it worked, then there'd be someone in place. If it doesn't work, that's fine too. You know, we'll. You know, our, our other plan is that we go down to a half an acre. Betsy has a quarter acre of flowers, and we have a half a quarter acre of vegetables, and we crank out a little money to go traveling on, and you know, we and then, we can do that in our sleep. So. <laughs> really? Are you sure? It feels like it now. Okay, so maybe that's the difference between thirty-five years and twenty-five years. There, I don't, I don't know that I could do it in my sleep. Um, so the, um. It's really interesting to me that you've got that, I mean, having that perspective, that, that long-term perspective. Did you, when you guys started the farm and you said you had a business plan that had you going to 10 acres and obviously you didn't end up executing that plan and you didn't end up executing the plan that said you were going to do everybody on pick your own. Right. Uh, that's responding to the business environment. Right. But how have you conducted those sorts of long-term planning exercises as you've gone through this? Because I would think they would be especially important in a small, lean business like you've got. You know, I wish I could say that we had a real organized uh, process for that. Uh, I think part of it is that because it's really been just Betsy and me, and we're both here full time, that we uh, a long time ago came up with a uh, sort of a communication system. you know, when you live live with someone 24 hours a day, you have to have ways to have private space and ways to talk about stuff. And so, we, you know, we sort of have a business side of us and then the personal side of us. And so uh, we just always talked about, you know, particularly in the winter, okay, what's the, where are we going? What's the plan? So it's just sort of a constant evolution, but there's not sort of a let's sit down and do a strategic planning process. Uh, and fortunately, we agree or, have, you know, have always agreed on X, Y, and Z, uh, and it had never been any sort of battle. And, you know, as you know, most problems with couples are money-related, and we haven't had that issue because we never had any money. So uh, it's made that, that argument a little less of a problem. But I mean, you say you've never had any money, but at the same time, I mean, you've clearly been you've clearly been doing okay if you've put enough money away to retire. Right. I, you know, we were so poor for so long. I mean, we literally did live in a tent for eight months when we first started the farm, and we were running two this business and a second business. To I was a painting contractor to have cash flow to build buildings and do stuff, you know. Uh, but we literally had no money. I mean, we were just. We didn't get, you know, the kids that were first don't believe this stuff. You know, we didn't go anywhere for like 10 years. We didn't go on vacation. You know, we almost wouldn't go to anyone's wedding or anything because we just couldn't either afford to be gone time-wise or we just didn't have the money. And so when we finally did start making money, we still have that mindset of we have no money. And so, so you said that took you 10 years it, that you guys didn't go anywhere. Yeah, it was a long time. Uh, and what... 
what made the difference? Was it something that you did that made the difference between not making money and making money? Or was it, it was, was it just the gradual accumulation of your business? It was mostly, um, we finally got all the infrastructure in place. And then all we had to do was concentrate on growing stuff. Um, and we had, of course, plan A was pick your own. That didn't work. So it took us a few years to evolve into plan B, which was vegetables and cut flowers and, and different market options. You know, it took a while to figure that out. So instead of, you know, like the kids are these days, they're really sharp and they're up and they're, they're profitable in three years, you know, or five years. It took us eight years to get to that break-even point. And then uh, that was about the time that I sold the second business or got out of the second business and was here full-time and we had the infrastructure pretty much done and then it was just a matter of you know ramping it up uh, and that's really what happened and then we uh, were just frugal I think most of the best farmers are I think it just it seems to come by nature to, to have that frugal approach oh. and you know we've had a concentration on which uh, I was listening to one of your podcasts I can't remember who it was I was uh, John from Angelic Organics, you know, he, he and I agree on, and you probably do too, you know, it's, it's all about, it's all about labor, both in getting it done and the most expensive input. And so we, we have a real focus on how do we reduce labor and how do we not grow crops or do things that are stupid in labor. Uh, and, you know, like we don't do salad mix because I think there's just too much labor in cutting and washing and bagging and even before we get into FISMA. Uh, you know, so there are certain things we just have said the labor's too high on that. So, we're, you know, we're always watching the labor cost and the actual expenditure of labor physically. It's interesting that even on your farm, you're saying the labor costs are so high when when you're such a, you, you don't, you don't have a lot of hired labor. I mean, obviously you and Betsy are, are hired to some degree because the corporation is, must be paying right, you. Right. We take a paycheck from the corporation, but still it's not like, I mean, that's, that's your, still your money. So you're still looking at it as being the limiting resource. Well, you know, in if, your you look, situation. if you break down, you know, your costs, uh, you know, a lot, as you know, a lot of these small farmers are spending as much as 50% of gross on hired labor. That's not including themselves. And that, you know, that just doesn't leave much return to, to management. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, if they're, they're feeling really good if they get it down to about 33%. Uh, and we're, we run between 15 and 20. Last few years, it's run right at 19% of gross in, in uh, hired labor. Uh, is that hired labor, including you and Betsy, no, or hired labor, hired labor just outside? Us. Yeah, hired okay. labor not including us. And so, uh, if we can keep it down there around twenty percent, then we know there's a there's enough return to do other stuff with. And then the very second most expensive input on the farm is insurance. You know, people think, as you know, people non farmers think that it's. It's certainly got to be diesel fuel or seeds or something, but that's way down the list on percentage of gross. Yeah. So labor is the one. If you can keep keep an eye on it, is where you can make the biggest changes on uh, profit margin. Because you certainly can't do much about insurance. I mean, that's. I mean, that's fixed. It is, you know, it's fixed. It yeah. is what it is. And and you know, back to the bookkeeping thing. The reason the expenses. Now, the expenses don't change once you get to a certain point. You know, the, the electricity is the same every year. 
you know, the cover crop seed is the same every year, you know, unless I'm adding more acres. None of that ever changes. So I never freak out about too much about those changes. It's that changes in both the income side and then labor are the things we can do the most to change quickly. What do you feel has been the key for you to reducing your labor costs so so low? I mean, some of that, of course, has to do with scale and the fact that, you know, you and Betsy are providing most of the hours on the farm, but you're obviously doing other things as well to keep that cost low. You know, I think the biggest part is being really organized uh, every day before the uh, staff shows up so that when they get there, we know exactly what we're doing. And that includes, you know, tools and picking containers and whatever it might be so that they're not standing around waiting for instruction. Um, and then part of it is teaching, uh, making sure that we work with them uh, early on so that they know exactly, uh, you know, how big is a bunch of turnips and, you know, how fast, how to hold your knife and where's your rubber band bag. And, you know, you know, Elliot Coleman talks about this a lot about just these little things about how can you pick up that knife and put it down when you're trimming stuff, how much time does that take, you know? And so we work with them a lot and then make sure that uh, if it's a new person, they're at least working with an experienced person so that they're not just out on their own. And I'll also try to make sure folks almost always work with someone else so that there's not only uh, companionship, but there's, you know, there's a little competition that always happens between people. And then I wanted to, I wanted to circle back to, you mentioned tractors and you've got a three and a half acre farm Mm -hmm. and you know, there's a lot of, I think we're all still stuck in, in a lot of ways in this idea that uh, the two wheel tractor on the five acres of vegetables that came out of Elliot Coleman's book back in the 1990s. And it, interesting to me that you start talking about tractors and I think you even said tractors plural. Well, I mean, forever we've had one, we actually inherited another one from a a neighbor, but it basically doesn't do a lot, but it's bigger. It's a bigger tractor. So I use it for hauling some things around, but we've, we've run forever on a 30 horsepower, two wheel drive diesel tractor uh, that does really our soil prep. Uh, and then almost all, we do a little tractor cultivation, weeding, but almost all of that's done with uh, wheel hose and hand hose and, and that kind of thing. So the tractor, again, is really soil prep. Okay. Okay. What, what kinds of, of implements do you have for the tractor? So, you know, our, our, uh, it's pretty basic set. We've got a, a spring tooth field cultivator for deep ripping. We have a big offset disc for cutting in covers and that kind of thing. We have a tractor-drawn rototiller. We've got a flail mower, uh, and that's really it. You know, I mean, there's some, there's some boom poles and a blade and some other stuff, but the actual working stuff is those four. Pretty basic line, real basic, line of equipment. Yeah, real basic. Uh, you know, because our system is really based on cover crops, and so it's really, you know, the only other piece I wish I had and could afford, and I, I blanch every time I look at the price, is uh, I'd really like to have a really good drill, really to get the cover crops established really well. Uh, yeah. But, you know, a really good drill is 10000 bucks. I don't want to go there. Especially for a small one that would that would fit to your scale. Exactly. It's almost like they get more expensive the smaller yeah, you get. Yeah, exactly. Now, do you still have everything laid out on 100 foot by 100 foot 
plots? Yeah, so a quarter acre is our standard thing, and, and that's mostly because the place rolls actually a fair amount, and so that uh, between the tree lines and the contours, we were trying to get a contiguous size that would work with everything, and so that that's how it worked for us. Uh, Betsy sometimes wishes we had shorter rows just for harvesting ease, but 100 feet you know, makes it more uniform. Yeah, especially with the flowers for carrying those buckets of water around. Right, right. So we've worked on, you know, and that's another efficiency piece, you know, uh, drive-throughs between each block so we can get as close as possible and we're not, you know, carrying stuff too far and not using carts to do stuff. I've got an old friend, an old friend from West Virginia who always said, uh, use a little gas, save a little ass. And, and uh, I think about that all the time. And, you know, we try to get the, the truck or the tractor as close as we can so that there's not too much hand work carrying things around. But, you know, the 100-foot the thing, as you know, that's another efficiency piece that if everything's the same length, then it makes it really easy to do rotations and, you know, all the cover crops the same length, all the trellisings the same length, all the drip lines are the same, you know, all that stuff is just sort of automatic. And so it really helps when you say to someone, go go build tomato trellis over here. Well, it's the same there that was five years ago in another field because they're all 100 feet long. And even though maybe you could take that extra 20 feet at the end of the row, it's you're actually gaining an efficiency by not having some fields that are a little bit longer just to carve out an extra an extra few hundred square feet. Right. So when we laid out the whole place, we you know maximized the hundred feet as much as we could so that so that there's hopefully not twenty feet floating around somewhere that we're not using. Alex, I think we should this is probably the right time to turn to our lightning round of <laughs> questions that we like to do at the end. So we're gonna hit you up with just a few questions that we that we ask all of our guests here. So um What's your favorite tool on the farm, Alex? Well, you know, in a hand tool, it would be uh, the Real uh, wheel hoe, or now a glazer. I can't remember. They keep changing names. But the wheel hoe is a great, is an awesome tool. When we found that, that really revolutionized uh, weed control. And you like the, you're using the stirrup hoe that comes with that. Pretty much. I and mean, we use, I've got some chevrons and I've got some side cut knives. Um, but for the most part, it's the, you know, the bulk of it is, is the stirrup hoe. Yeah. Now you say the real, what's the, or, 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 or again, the glazer, whichever one it is, um, the, that one over other brands, have you trialed others or is that just you the know, one I've that got, you got? I've got, uh, uh, a Planet Junior model. I really like the, the I think the uh, rubber tire is much more controllable. And I also like the aluminum or s- steel handles over the wood ones. Uh, they're, I think, yeah. they're more comfortable to use. Uh, but we, ha- you know, we actually have both, but we pretty much only use the one. I, I've always preferred the, the steel handles, too, yeah. on that. Where Where did you go to get yours? With the steel I handles, because I don't. I think originally it might have come from Peaceful Valley. Yeah. If it, I don't think it came from Johnny's. I think it came from Peaceful Valley, but I could be wrong on that. Okay. That's a you know and again one of these things is I think has changed so much over the last twenty years is where I mean now there's so many different companies to get a wheel hoe. Twenty years ago, it was it was wheel hose from Peaceful Valley, and it was the it was the Glazers. That was what was available. That's right. oh. Well, and Elliot sent us all that way, so. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Uh, you know, <laughs> I think Elliot did a lot of sending us in Elliot the right did, direction. You know, I, I tell folks, you know, until until let 
book came along, and of course we'd been at it for eight years by then. It was the first time anyone had laid it down in a system, and I'm, a, I'm and you are too. I'm a systems thinker, and I said, "Oh my God, here it is." Uh, and you know, there's a lot of stuff, and I've, I've talked to Elliot about this. You know, there's things I don't agree with him about that particularly yeah. are not, you know, don't work in the southeast that do in Maine. But um, but the thought of laying it down, and particularly his brilliance and rotations and, and, and cover crops and having that all together, uh, I think, you know, was the first time that you could see that there was a way to do this. Well, and I know for me, it was just having having something to be able to consistently refer to one source that laid out one way to do things. Right. This is how many rows you're going to put per bed of this crop. This is the spacing you're going to use. Are you going to use a one and a half or a two inch soil block? Um, just all of that was so incredibly important yep. to have that. Yeah, absolutely. And, it was and, like a know, system. I don't think anyone really approached it, you know, as well since there are certainly other books that have, have hit other parts. You know, uh, Richard's book is great on business, and you know, there's other things here and there. But Elliot, I think, still. Uh, has it all in one place. I think it's, yeah, it's still the Bible. That's so, so, Hey, what's um? you mentioned things that worked in Maine that don't work in the South. Uh, can you just throw a couple of examples out there? I think that'd be interesting to touch on here. Well, I mean, we can grow uh, certainly different cover crops uh, and we have more window to do that both winter and summer that uh, in colder climates just, you know, you're confined to certain times or you don't dare turn, you know, put summer covers in your field because everything happens all at once in a colder climate. And here we've got three seasons, so actually four seasons that we can grow in. So that opens that up some. and I think actually season extension here, we can fine tune in a way uh, that it's sort of either it's really cold or it's not further north to some degree. And that's that's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, and here, you know, when I first when I first saw Elliot, this was years and years ago, and we were we were somewhere and. I said, you know, I've got six sliding tunnels like yours. He goes, you don't even need them down there. I said, man, it gets a whole lot colder here than you think it does. He said, I, he said, I think you probably do it all with a row cover. I said, yeah, not 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 exactly. Not quite. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, those those Mainers and those Vermonters, they get a little insular up there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always yeah. I, I always poke at them gently, you know, uh, the Nordells as well. But you know, I said, what? Well, you know, I tell students, well, the reason all these uh, farming books are from people who live in, you know, Maine and all this because they got long, cold winters and plenty of time to write books. <laughs> Here, I thought it was always the Garrison Keeler thing of we just, we just work harder. Yeah. You know, so, hey, what's the, so to get back to the, the to get back round. to the lightning round here. So what's, what's the most challenging crop that you continue to grow? Mm. Um, well, we finally gave up on Brussels sprouts because I just decided it was as much as I would love to have them here. It's just we're not Brussels sprout country. Uh, you know, we're just not. It's too hot when we have to put them in, and so we just can't get the good growth uh, before it gets really cold. And so that's you know that's one that we go. Celery is very difficult, even though I continue to do it because uh, there's very few folks here that have it. Uh, but with shade cloth and lots of irrigation, you know, we've, we've managed to generally have a pretty consistent celery crop, at least for Thanksgiving. We're always sort of 
shooting for certain windows. Interesting. Now, is that is does that celery end up looking like California celery, or is it still? I, I know like Midwest celery is completely different than California celery. Uh, it's funny. It's like every other year, it looks like California celery. I can't figure that out. But it's usually a little taller. So sometimes it can be you know two and a half feet tall. Uh, but but the ribs and all look look the same. And okay. part of that is shade cloth. Part of it's not. That's, and you get the nice blanched stalks on it? Yeah, I mean, we're planting it six inches apart, so we're really sort of making it self-blanch. Oh, interesting. And you don't end up with massive disease problems on account of that? Well, it's one row, six inches apart, so it has good airflow on the sides. Um, okay. You know, last year we had something that really hit, and we were still not sure what it was. It looked like a virus to me, but generally, no. No, we're not having, a, we're not having any issues with it. All right. That's, that's a, that's a good hint right there. That's, that's the take home on there. One roll of celery, six inches apart. And then for us, you know, it's double uh, irrigation land on either side of the row, at least in, we just planted it in July uh, and under shade cloth. And then the shade cloth has to come off uh, by Labor Day because then the days are getting so short. Everything under shade cloth gets squirrely. Uh, right. So, yeah, you know, uh, it's all about, you know, like we're so, we still have lettuce. It was 100 degrees here for a week and we still have lettuce, but you know, all the customers go, how do you do that? And I go, well, it's a lot of water, you know, constant water. So, yeah. Keeping it, keeping it wet. And that, yeah. that moisture, I think, has so much thermal mass. It, it does have an ability to keep things cool, yeah. as well as just the evaporative cooling right. of pumping it through the lettuce. Right. right. Exactly. Oh. All right. And if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? Well, I always uh, tell all the folks who've worked for us, I said, if you can start small and, and grow at a steady rate. And we started with, we literally started with four acres in the ground and we were behind the eight ball from the beginning. And from so, day one. Uh, if you can, we have a young woman who, been in her, I guess she's been at it eight years now, and she started. We she started here with a quarter acre, and then finally found a piece of land. But she literally went a quarter acre to a half acre to three quarters of an acre, and now she's up to two or two and a half. And well, I'm sure she's been overwhelmed at points. Uh, I never get from her that she's like ready to tear her out and leave the farm. It's always been sort of a, a conscious decision, and I think if you can do that, that's that's the best thing you can do for yourself. And and some of that might mean lowering your expectations about just how quickly you're going to be able to make a living full time on the farm. Exactly. Uh, and of course, you know, things have changed so much. I mean, prices have changed and markets have changed. And that's actually a, that's a whole other subject. You know, we hear it, markets are so good, we, uh, farmers markets, uh, that no one's doing wholesale because they don't have to. They're all making a living on three acres of land or two acres of land. And back when we started, you know, we had to do wholesale. And so we had to have four or five acres or six or, you know, more in production. And so uh, most of the new farmers here are small. And the only ones that are big are the tobacco farmers who are transitioning out of tobacco. And they understand 10 and 20 acres and stuff. And it really is as long as those markets remain, those farmers markets remain viable. I was actually just on the phone um, with somebody from up in the Northeast who's, who's, the growers in his area are actually dealing with the problem that there's 
those markets are becoming saturated right. now. Right. And I think now, of course, you know, a lot of those states in the Northeast, there's as many people in, in the state as there are in, in Raleigh. Um, so it's a little bit of a different scene as far as, you know, relative numbers and relative potential, I think for the market. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, I think, I think it, do you think long-term, do you see the farmer's markets as continuing? Do you think that's going to be a viable market 30 years from now for these growers that are getting started today? Uh, I think for some of them it will be. But, you know, we have a problem here that is becoming a problem in a lot of markets is we've got too many markets. You know, everyone, their brother started a farmer's market and didn't think about was it a good location or was there enough farmers to go around or was there enough customers to go around. And so some of the, a lot of the markets are really struggling. Ours is still doing great. Uh, but, you know, our farmers group has really worked hard on it, just like, you know, Madison has and, and other places. Um, but a lot of them, you know, and that's where a lot of them have gone to CSAs because they couldn't get into farmer's market or they couldn't make farmer's market pay. And so they went to CSA as the way to sort of move their stuff. But still, none of them are doing hardly any restaurant business or wholesale business. And I think they need to think about doing some of that uh, as a way to diversify their revenue stream. If nothing else, yeah, diversify the revenue stream and, and get some more stability in case things do start to shift. At least have your toe in that world, I think, yeah. you know, uh, like provides. A- we sell almost no tomatoes to the grocery store. Uh, and But this week I had, you know, 300 pounds of red tomatoes extra. And I, you know, was delivering cut flowers. And I said, hey, you guys need some red tomatoes? I said, yeah, sure, bring them on. And yeah, it was a buck eighty a pound. It wasn't what I was going to get at market, but they were sold in five seconds. I didn't have to like chase around after fifteen restaurants to sell three hundred pounds of tomatoes. And you know, so it, it helps in all of that to have multiple streams. Like that. On that note, Alex, I've I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much. Absolutely, it's been great to talk. I hope we've kept you out of the out of the field and in the air conditioning for long enough yep. today. <laughs> I would hope so. I better go over and make sure that we've got stuff going to market. All right. So that's a wrap. Wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 23 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for HIT. That's H-I-T-T is how Alex spells his last name. If you like what you hear on the podcast, I would encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Please do take a moment to leave your comments on the Purple Pitchfork Facebook page, on the episode page for this show, and at iTunes. Your feedback really does make a difference in the number of people this show reaches and the impact that it can have, and that's why I'm doing it. Thank you so much for listening and for your support of this show. It's worth noting that the show does take a substantial amount of time to produce. In fact, I've been a little bit surprised at how much time it takes sometimes. Our sponsors like Vermont Compost and Fertrell for this episode and Osborne Seed and Second Cup Media and Audible for previous shows really have supported this work. Accessing their web pages through the show notes pages and sponsorship page on my website provides them with a way to measure your engagement. And of course, so does mentioning that you heard their ad on the Farmer to Farmer podcast. 
And one more thing, if you've hung on this long, I love to hear about what questions you, my listeners have that my guests or I might be able to answer in the podcast. I hope that we've been able to get to some of those that folks have offered up. Anything about farming and farm life is fair game. And if you want to be anonymous, just let me know and I won't mention your name on air. You know, the other thing I'll mention here is we're always looking for guests. If you've got favorite farmers in your area, particularly in areas of the country that we haven't been covering particularly well, I'd love to hear from you about those. The best place to leave those suggestions is at farmertofarmerpodcast.com on the contact page. And that really is a wrap for this episode. Keep weathering the weather out there and keep the tractor running. 